Well, it's one of the great delights of a preaching pastor, that experience that happens in any given week where the the next passage is at first somewhat dreaded. And then after some study and reflection and prayer, it becomes sheer delight. I hope that's not a shock to you to learn that not all of God's word is as easily preached and taught as other parts. The Apostle Peter said that some of Paul's writings were difficult. Our passage this morning isn't difficult in the same way that Paul can be difficult, but 2 Samuel 8 is difficult in its own way. At least that was my first impression upon reading it and starting to prepare it for this week, especially coming off the last few weeks in 2 Samuel 6 and 7. Delightful chapters in God's Word. 2 Samuel 6, you might remember, The Ark of the Covenant is brought into Jerusalem. David dances before it with all his might, and all Israel joins in the throng of praise. And then in 2 Samuel 7, we saw God's eternal praises to David to bless the world through his seed, which we saw really has to do with Jesus and his coming as the son of Abraham and son of David. We saw David's rich response to those grand promises last week. David praises God and asks God simply to do what God has already promised. These are fun passages to preach. 2 Samuel 8 is different. A a shift takes place from chapter 7 to chapter 8 in the tone and and the aim, the content. Chapter 8 is simply a, a summary of David's final wars. There's no prayer, there's no praise, in fact there's no dialogue, no one speaks in the story. Instead, thousands, tens of thousands are killed, others are subjugated, horses are maimed, gold and bronze, they're plundered. You take all of that and realize that today is a baptism Sunday. So some people here are going to hear a message on 2 Samuel 8 and then get baptized. At least we hope they still will. (laughs) What do David's wars have to do with baptism? What do David's wars have to do with anything? Well, remember I said that one of the great delights for a preacher of God's word who goes through books of the Bible is the transformation that can take place from dread to delight about a passage like this. And that's taken place again in this last week of my study of this chapter. Now, uh, that doesn't mean that a good sermon is to follow here. Uh, It just means I'm excited about it. So don't get your hopes too high here. Hopefully I haven't scared you off. Instead, intrigued you about 2 Samuel 8. Let's see it together. Let's read it now. After David defeated the Philistines and subdued them, and David took Metheg Amah out of the hand of the Philistines, and he defeated Moab, and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death, and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. And David also defeated Hadadazar, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen 
and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadazar, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. And David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadadazar and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Batah and from Barathai, cities of Hadadazar, King David took very much bronze. When Toy, king of Hamah, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadadazar, Toy sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadazar and defeated him. For Hadadazar had, been, had often been at war with Toy, and Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. These also King David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued, from Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadazar, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. And he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all of Edom, he put garrisons. And all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel. And David administered justice and equity to all his people. Joab, the son of Zuriah, was over the army. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. And Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests. And Sariah was secretary, and Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And David's sons were priests. Well, there's a repeated line in that chapter that shows us what the main point of the chapter is and also helps us with the structure of the chapter. Did you hear it? It's in the end of verse 6. You see there? And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Repeat it again at the end of verse 14. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. These verses are summarizing the verses that come before, the story that's told before. And so as we look at on our page here, we can kind of note then if these provide some structure to the overall chapter. We're, we're talking about three sections to this chapter, verses 1 through 6, then 7 through 14, and then a third in 15 to 18. And each of these sections has a kind of movement or progression implied in it. The first moves from conflict to conquering. Conflict to conquering in the first six verses. Here Israel is in conflict with its surrounding nations once again, as it's been so many times before and hundreds of years before. But now, here, under King David, they conquer. It's not just conflict. They conquer and conquer completely. Seven times we're told that David struck down the enemy. The ESV doesn't translate them all the same way, even though it's the same Hebrew word. Uh, you see, defeated in verse 1, defeated in verse 2, defeated in verse 3. That's the same Hebrew word as struck down in verse 9, struck down in verse 13. 
The casualties were massive. Those not killed were subdued. And each war takes Israel in a different direction on the compass. In verse 1, David and his army move to the west against the Philistines. In verse 2, David heads east, defeating the Moabites. In verse 3, and then in verse 5, they look north to Syria and the river Euphrates, and they conquer there. And then verse 13, when we read of the destruction of the Edomites, that's going far south. Some have estimated that David increased his territory by four at this point in his military success. This may look to you like any old Middle Eastern power grab. You know, history's had many of these, especially in the Middle East, you might be thinking. What's different about this one? A bunch of countries that can't get along in one country that for a season had unusual success and dominance. But we can't think like that as Christians because this is what God promised to Abraham a thousand years before David. In Genesis 15, God said to Abraham, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. God goes on to tell him about the exodus, slavery in Egypt, and being rescued there. God says, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they'll be afflicted for 400 years. Even the time stamp is given. But I will bring about judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out. But here's the key for our passage. God goes on to tell Abraham, to your offspring I will give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cademanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, the Jebusites, all of the ites, even the mosquito bites. That might be one of the Hebrew words here for one of those names, mosquito bites, I don't know. But, but you notice how specific this is with time? How specific it is with place, with parameters. And that's what we're seeing in 2 Samuel 8. Finally, finally, after a thousand years and a lot of drama and all kinds of conflicts, Joshua got them into the land and had much success against the other nations there. But nothing like 2 Samuel 8. Under judges, Israel was under constant attack from the nations around them. Things were much worse off in the days of Judges than they were before in the days of Joshua. It's similar in the book of 1 Samuel. Apart from a few victories over the Philistines or the Amorites, Israel is often in battle and usually on the losing end. King Saul, as they hoped, he'd be a, a man who's like a, the king like the nations who will go out for us and fight our battles for us. And he had very little success against the Philistines or others. In fact, the Philistines were his undoing. His sons and him were killed in the battlefield of 1 Samuel 31 by the hands of the Philistines. Of course, Saul killed himself because the threat was so imminent and he was a coward. But it was at the Philistines that he died. There was little progress made against the enemy. The only hint we have of something good to come 
in the book of 1 Samuel starts with this shepherd boy who has great success against a giant Goliath. God is with him, we're told in chapter 16, and then we hear his brave words for the testimony of God in chapter 17. Listen again what David said to the giant Goliath that day. You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. Why? Why will God do this? That all the earth may know that there's a God in Israel and that this assembly, these coward-like soldiers behind me, that they may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. It's not just David who's the bright spot, though. Yes, he's killed his tens of thousands, we're told, even early on in 1 Samuel. But back at the beginning of the book, when Hannah prayed, when she wrote a song of praise to God, she prophesied. She said that the bows of the mighty are broken, and the feeble bind on strength. And the Lord kills and brings to life, and he brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. Hannah somehow knew that God was rumbling against his enemies and getting ready to pounce. The adversaries of the Lord, she said, shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, the four corners. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now those are promises long ago in the story of First and Second Samuel, but that's what we're seeing play out more and more as the story goes along, and it's what we're seeing here in chapter 8. And it is the Lord's doing, make no mistake. The Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. That's what God had promised to Abraham. It's what he'd put in the heart of Hannah. It's what God had put in the mind of David. And it's what God had just recently, in our reading of the story, what he said to David back in chapter 7. Do you remember this? Now, you should know this, that chronologically, it probably moves from the end of chapter 5 to chapter 8. David was fighting the Philistines at the end of 5. He's fighting them again at the beginning of chapter 8. It's likely that chapter 6 and chapter 7 actually happened after chapter 8. You say, well, that's a mistake. Who made the mistake? No, 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 it's on purpose. Uh, they wrote history in a way that preached and, and taught. and It was clever. It was more clever than our storytelling today. And so they often would link things thematically, not just string things chronologically. And you can understand, can't you? If you were here last week and the week before about those promises that God gave David, why it was important for us to hear about those before we see it play out in fulfillment here in chapter 8. 
So let's remind ourselves what we saw two weeks ago from chapter 7, where God said to David, I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. That's what we see in chapter 8. It's God's plan, even if it makes us a bit squeamish. This conquest stuff, especially in the Old Testament, It makes people nervous. You're a human being if it does. You have to wrestle with it. But you have to wrestle with it by first acknowledging the fact that it is God behind it. God planned it. God promised it. God was bringing it to pass. At least that's what the Bible says as we've been seeing. You see, God was using Israel as an imperfect instrument. They were imperfect Far, far from perfect. God was using an imperfect instrument of his judgment, though, upon even more wicked nations. This is what Moses told the people back in Deuteronomy 9. He told them that it wasn't their righteousness that was leading God to drive out nations in front of them, but the unrighteousness of the nations around them. God said through Moses, Know therefore today that he who goes before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God, and he will destroy them and subdue them before you. Verse 4, do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it's because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. No, it's not because of your righteousness, but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you. And that he may confirm the word that the Lord spoke to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So God was doing two things at the same time. He was driving out the nations in judgment of those wicked nations. And he was also giving his people a place. A place for his presence. A place for his peace. God's patience with sinners is much more remarkable than his judgment of sinners. We're told in Romans that God's patience should actually lead us to repentance. It shouldn't get us to presume upon his patience and then judge him for judging. It should drive us to repentance. God's promises to sinful Israel not to mention his use of a sinful king. They're much more amazing than God's judgment upon nations like Philistia and Syria and Zobah and Edom. We should also realize that David wasn't barreling through innocent, otherwise peaceable countries like Hitler did through Europe. These were fight-or-be-fought kind of days. I mean, Israel and its surrounding countries were always at war, one with another, one getting a little bit more territory, then a little bit less. It's not as if they had just been peaceable and everyone stayed in their own corner that everything would have been fine, but no one stayed in their corner. 
were hell-bent on each other's destruction. And as we wrestle through conquest in the Old Testament, we should also reckon with the fact that here in 2 Samuel 8, not all were killed. Not all were. I know that's not very comforting. Not all. I mean, you, you, you'd hate to say of Japan, well, not all were killed. <laughs> no, that would be horribly distasteful. But, but there is something about that. Here, God is, through David, sparing some and receiving them. Now, I know in Joshua's day, there were times when God said, spare none of the Canaanites. God told Saul once to take out all the Amalekites, sparing none. But apparently here in 2 Samuel 8, David was not under such thorough requirements, and that was grace. Yes, one-third of, two-thirds of the Moabites were killed. But one-third became servants of David and even brought him tribute. Their citizenship changed. Why did God allow David? Why did David kill two-thirds and spare one-third? Why not spare all? Why not spare two-thirds and kill one-third? Well, we're not told. We're not told, but it seems as though the tone is an affirming tone. God seems to be okay with what David did. Behold the goodness and severity of David. Behold the goodness and severity of God. 22,000 Syrians died. But some Syrians became servants to David and brought him tribute. 18,000 Edomites died. But an untold number of Edomites became servants of David. An untold number of Philistines, back in verse 1, they were subdued. That's a word that can mean something like killed, overtaken, or more positively, it can be put in submission, humbled, almost like repentance. They're placed under David's good rule as he subdues them. And I say good rule. It is a good rule. Verse 15 makes that explicit. We'll see that in just a minute. And then the next couple of chapters show it again and again. David rules in equity and justice and righteousness. You see, here in 2 Samuel 8, God's rule was spreading out. It wasn't just David's rule. God was using David to accomplish it. And whenever God spreads out his rule, it's a matter of life and death. It's a fork in the road. It can be life and goodness, joy, peace, rest, equity, justice, or resisting his rule can mean death and even eternal death. Are you resisting God's rule? Are you opposed to his ways? Will you bow before him? Will you give him tribute and recognize who he is even though you've been wrong up until now? Will you really keep fighting him to your death? forever? Well, you don't have a chance. And really, it's the same today and yet different because we Christians, we don't fight God's battles for him with sword or spear 
or guns or bombs or drones. But there is a conflict going on. There is a conqueror on the loose. We Christians are proof that there is a conqueror because we've been conquered. We, didn't, we weren't born believing this stuff, but our stubborn, sinful, rebellious wills were changed. We were wooed. We were loved. We didn't resist. Forever we bowed and recognized and we came in. And, and now he's made us his servants, his messengers. We're citizens and, and we're, we're ambassadors. We're in outposts all over the world. He's made us to be his messengers to the nations. Not with a sword, but with the sword of the word, with a message to tell, with terms to give to those who are in rebellion against this true king in this ultimate kingdom. Some will resist, and some will believe. Paul talks about both responses in 2 Corinthians 2 when he says, We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, we're a fragrance from death to death. They smell us, and it's like they only smell death. And yet to other, we are a fragrance from life to life. There is conflict. God is conquering and that's why in Psalm 2, a psalm which is almost the most quoted, it's the second most quoted psalm in the New Testament, a psalm written by David, a psalm about David, but even more about David's greater son, Jesus. You see, what God was doing through King David relates to why Jesus came and it relates to why Jesus will come back because, because of this. Listen to Psalm 2 again. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. God says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. There's one option. Kiss the sun. Here's the other option. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. It's 2 Samuel 8. And it's the story of Jesus, his death and resurrection. Now, secondly, in our passage of 2 Samuel 8, we move from collecting to consecrating in the story. There's collecting, moving to consecrating. Verse 7, And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadadazar and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Batah and from Barathai, cities of Hadadazar, King David took very much bronze. He didn't take all. Some precious metals and treasures were given to him. Tribute was made to him by the Moabites and, and the Syrians. There's a great little piece here about Toy, verse 9 and following, the king of Hamath. 
He's an interesting case, and so we're given a little more detail about his scenario in relationship to David. He heard about David's victories over that longtime enemy of Toy, Hadadazar. They were in the north battling, always battling, always a threat to Toy. Then David went up and he got rid of Hadadazar. He plundered that land. And Toy, of course, was glad to hear that that longtime enemy was gone. And so he sent thanks and in honor to David. He sent gifts to David. He sent his son, verse 10, to ask about his health and to bless him. It's not like asking about his health is uh, David had a flu at the time or pneumonia or he wanted to make sure he was not injured in any recent battles. No, no, no. It, it's a way of expressing concern and care and wishing David well and and really, this is a way in which he's recognizing the king as the king. He's paying honor to him. He's giving tribute to him. He's acknowledging David with these articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. Can you feel that it's all building up? And then we're told what David did with all of this stuff. Verse 11, King David dedicated it to the Lord together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued. He didn't just collect, he consecrated it. He gave it to the Lord because it was already his. The Lord owns a cat, the cattle on a thousand hills. It's all his. And David was simply acknowledging that. Not collecting for himself because the battles were not for himself. It was for God's people, for God himself. These materials, we're told later on, were used to build the temple in Solomon's day. That glorious temple filled with gold, and brass, and silver. Even in Solomon's day, even with the, the temple built, the nations would come in. They would enter into Jerusalem and they would give their gifts to King Solomon. They would honor him. They'd bow before him. They'd recognize him as a king of kings, like the Queen of Sheba famously did. She came bringing gold and frankincense and myrrh. The nations were coming in and the wealth of the nations was coming in because it's all God's. It's all his. So that's what David wrote about in a psalm that he wrote about 2 Samuel 8. Did you know that? There's a psalm about 2 Samuel 8. It's Psalm 60. You can read the whole thing on your own maybe later today, but let me just read a few verses where David puts on the lips of God God's ownership of the nations and helps us make sense of what we're reading in 2 Samuel 8. God has spoken in his holiness, Psalm 60 says, with exaltation, I will divide up Shechem and portion out the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah is my scepter. Moab is my washbasin. Upon Edom, I cast my shoe. Over Philistia, I shout in triumph. The nations are his, and all that's in the nations is his. Isaiah, a few hundred years after David, he was putting these themes together 
The themes of kings and nations and wealth coming to God. In Isaiah 60, he said, Nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They shall all gather together. They come to you, and then you will see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nation shall come to you. You know why that's really significant? Because it's also how the Bible ends. Revelation talks about this. John, the revelator, must have been thinking on Isaiah 60 when he wrote of the new heaven and new earth that will come one day. By its light will the nations walk. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. Isn't there just a hint of this when the Magi show up in Matthew 2? These kings from afar, wise men kings, coming with their treasures, falling down and worshiping him, offering him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You see, we're getting a microcosm of the same repeated story all through the Bible But thirdly, back in 2 Samuel 8, we move from chaos to calm. From chaos to calm. Here's the calm, verse 15. David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Then verses 16 to 18 tell us about David's cabinet, his appointed men. A general, a secretary, a historian, priests administrators. The point is that this is now not a ragtag thing, but looking more towards being a well-oiled machine. This is not 12 clans loosely held together by a crazy King Saul, but a legit nation, the largest at the time, multi-layered in its administration and leadership. And there's peace all around. David administered justice and equity to all his people. And if you hear justice and equity in strict and harsh terms, like David was a judge that always gave the maximum sentence, you're missing it. No, justice and righteousness. Finally, not not neglected justice like in the days of judges or perverted justice in the days of Eli and his sons. Not arbitrary justice as in the days of Saul, which was really self-serving justice for whatever worked for him. Finally, now, justice, peace, shalom, the way it's supposed to be. This is like a blown-up garden of Eden. Yeah, there's still sinners But don't you see, God is restoring his peace among a people in a place with his promises, with his presence, with his peace. It's what the Bible calls rest. Rest. I mean, just do a Bible search on that and see how much God was talking about, promising about a day coming where there finally would be rest. Not rest like you don't have to work on Monday, but rest like it's all the way it's supposed to be. So this is it? This is the end of the promises? This is the end of the book? Well, of course it isn't. 
It isn't just by looking at the pages on the left and the pages on the right. This is not the completion of God's plan. It looks like it could be for a moment, but this is only a microcosm of peace. It doesn't last very long. The enemies get revived. The king dies. The next king's okay, but then not so good. And it goes downhill from there. You see, we have to move on from this part in our Bibles to see the true king, the final kingdom, the ultimate covenant. Not just a corner of the world like it is here, but a whole new creation. Not just in one country like it is here, but spreading abroad among the whole cosmos of God's creation. You have to understand that since Jesus came, the goal is not to get back to Jerusalem, whether through a pilgrimage or to live there. The goal is not to take people back to Jerusalem where God reigns, but to realize that in Jesus, God's reign has gone global in an exceptional, unthinkable, and increasing way. That's why he sends us out with all authority in heaven and earth to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to do whatever he's commanded, and believing that, lo, Jesus said, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. So that's how we get to baptism. God's authority in this world making disciples, which could be called citizens of the king in his kingdom. Jesus said, make disciples, baptizing them. He, he taught us later in his word through his apostles about baptism even more. He told us that it's a picture, a symbol. It shows us what takes place in a Christian's life as they come to be a Christian, as they come to believe. They're identifying with this king. They've come to him, and they identify not just with him generally, but specifically with his death and resurrection, because that is the only means by which you can enter into this kingdom. You can't bring your gold or silver or bronze or shields, and you can't bring your baptism. But once you've come in, He's given us this beautiful picture of what it's like to come to him and what we're identifying with. We're identifying with one who died and was raised. We're seeing ourselves anew as those who have been crucified to sin and been raised to newness of life. What a glorious picture we've been given about baptism in the Bible and visibly before our eyes today. As we watch this and as we think on our own Christian experience, our own baptisms for that matter, as we think of what it means theologically, spiritually, remember all the benefits that come to those who are in him, under him, with him, identifying with him. I mean, here's just one. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, thanks be to God who in Christ gives us the victory. He gives us the victory. He's won the victory. He hasn't just defeated silly countries like Philistia. Our hope is not in Jesus who defeats the Russians. God has better purposes than to defeat your enemies if your enemies are relatives. 
or bosses at work, annoying people. Jesus came to defeat Satan and sin, the longest of all the enemies of God and his people. He came to conquer death that we might die and not die. It's good news, amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your assurance that we are of your church and you will build your church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Oh Lord, help this word picture of you building us in it and the responsibility we have as your church to go even to the gates of hell with your confidence and your, your authority. Lord, what encouragement we have that hell will not prevail but be kicked in. Thank you, Jesus, that you came to bind the strong man and plunder his goods. Help us to behold this wondrous mystery of you dying in our place, of us being raised with you, of you coming again. Everything we know to believe, everything we know is true. Help us behold the wondrous mystery of baptism. Help us to sing to each other, to behold you in your glory. In Christ's name, amen.